0: Salutations, welcome everybody to another episode of the Next Day Takeaways here on Keyboard Komore, presented to you by One Bone. E. Spencer Kite, Sunday, August 20th, looking back, reflecting on UFC 292 from TD Garden in Boston, Massachusetts. Took place last night, two title fights, a new champion in the bantamweight division. Let's run through the results and then we'll get into the takeaways. In the main event, Sugar Sean O'Malley became The UFC bantamweight champion with a second round TKO victory over Aljamain Sterling, 51 seconds into the second stanza. Co-main event, Zhang Wei Li successfully defends her strawweight title with a unanimous decision win over Amanda Lamosh, 50-43, 50-44, and 49-45. Welterweight feature bout Ian Machado-Gary remains undefeated with a clean sweep of the scorecards against Neil Magny, 30-26 twice, and 30-24. Bantamweight fight Mario Batista runs his winning streak to five, 29-28, 29-28, and 30-27 against short notice replacement Damone Blackshear, who gave a very good effort. We will touch on him and Batista a little later on. Also in the Bantamweight division to open the main card, Marlon Vera gets a clean sweep of the scorecards as well, 30-27 twice, 29-28 over Pedro Munoz. Moving to the prelims, middleweight division Brad Tavares defeats Chris Weidman in his return to the octagon, 30-27s across the board. Gregory Rodriguez stops Dennis Tiulian by knockout due to ground-and-pound elbows, 1 minute and 43 seconds into the opening round. Lightweight, tough 31 finale, Kurt Hollibaugh defeats Austin Hubbard, a beautiful submission off his back triangle choke, 2 minutes and 39 seconds into the second round. Brad Katona, in the Bantamweight Finals, makes history, becoming the first man to win the Ultimate Fighter twice, defeating Cody Gibson by unanimous decision, 29-28, 29-28, and 30-27 for the Canadian, who now resides in Dublin, Ireland. Further down on the prelims, back to middleweight, Andre Petroski gets a split decision win over Gerald Mearshart. 29 28 across the board, 2-1 for Andre Petrosky who moves to 5-0 oh in the UFC, And then the Silva sisters, who aren't actually sisters, in the flyweight division to open the show. Natalia defeats Andrea Lee, 30-27s across the board. And Karine Silva defeats Marina Morose by guillotine choke at 4 minutes and 59 seconds of the opening round to earn her third straight first round submission win to start her UFC career. Those are the results. Now let's get into the stuff that's been percolating in my brain since the end of this event less than 12 hours ago. I'm taping this bright and early. The sun is coming up eight o'clock in the morning here in Abbotsford, British Columbia. First and foremost, Sean O'Malley's is the goods. The thing I was looking forward to about this fight and the thing that intrigued me so much, fascinated me so much about this fight is that we were just, we were going to find out all those questions that we had about sugar Sean O'Malley. We were going to get our answers. We were going to find out how he does When Aljamain Sterling looks to close the distance and grapple, we got answers. We were going to find out how he did on the biggest stage when the spotlight was on him, when he was in that position that he has always said he was meant to be in and going to thrive in. And he thrived. I mean, the right hand that ended this fight was a beautiful shot. Lots of comparisons immediately after the bout. And as we continue forward to Conor McGregor's pull left hand, against Jose Aldo, obviously around later, different setups, things like that, but just a beautiful shot in the slow-mo replay that they showed regularly that the UFC put out on socials throughout the evening and, and into today. You see it coming. You see the read, you see the reaction. He gets out of the way of one from Aljo and loads up that right as Aljo's coming forward and it's just, it's a beautiful shot. And it confirms or affirms, I should say, a lot of the stuff that O'Malley has said about himself being a sniper, having that kill shot power, which is, is such a differentiating factor. Like, I don't think we actually talk about it enough, especially in the lower weight classes, because it's one thing to have it at heavyweight and some of the higher weight classes, right, where we talk about Guys brandishing knockout power and only needing one shot, right? That's Derek Lewis, his entire career, all wrapped up in one little phrase. But with O'Malley carrying it at this weight in this division, where he just needs one and it doesn't have to be some big load-up shot. It doesn't have to be swing for the fences. He just needs that opening because he's so precise. He's so technical and we saw that on Saturday. It was a beautiful shot. There can't be any more questions about his legitimacy. There can still be questions about how long the Sugar Show is going to run atop the bantamweight division going forward. This is, in my opinion, and I'll talk about it in a little bit, the best division in the UFC, hands down. And there are contenders at the ready. It's going to be really interesting to see how the UFC decides to match Sean O'Malley up going forward. We'll touch on that at the back end of the show when we get into the matchmaking segment. But there can't be any more questions about, is this kid real? As I said throughout the week, I loved the fact that he addressed all of the criticism and all of the questions head on, right? I talked about how Zach and I posed some questions to him during the week about what do you say to the critics? What do you say to the people that question the level of competition? And he said, well, I beat Pyotr Jan. And that guy's pretty good. And so I think I'm pretty good. And then he went out and beat the champion, a guy that a lot of people were talking about as the best bantamweight of all time. I think he's in that conversation. I think he's part of a group of elite talents to be towards and at the top of that division. I'm not a big, I'm trying to get away from being a goat guy because I hate those conversations because we get too bogged down in them and, and don't celebrate enough people. We're always looking to narrow it to one. But Sean O'Malley went out and put that one or or one of those ones out on Saturday night. And so you can't take anything away from him. You can't knock him anymore. You can continue to look forward to see how he does against some of the elite talent that is going to be gunning for him in this division. But the questions were answered on Saturday. This kid is the real deal. He has the potential and the skill and the talent to be a long-reigning champion. He is going to be a superstar. He probably already is a superstar. Now it's going to be how far can he take it? And I'm fascinated. I'm all in. This is the Sugar Show is now one of those shows that no matter how long it runs, I'm watching every episode. I was already here, but I was kind of, you know, just watching it cuz I have to. Now I'm invested. And even if it gets bad towards the end, even if it turns into one of those shows where a couple seasons on, it starts getting goofy, still going to watch because this kid's, this kid's fascinating. He is absolutely transfixing. You watch him fight and the feints and the movement and everything. It's great. Defended a couple early takedown attempts. Well, got out of there, fought hands really well, was able to limp leg and and extract himself from those positions. This is a great performance. He deserves all the credit in the world for doing what he did. He is the bantamweight champion, and I look forward to seeing what comes next. He is also the second Dana White Contender Series graduate to win UFC gold from the first three seasons, and I specify from the first three seasons, because to me, those are the seasons where the competitors have had enough time to matriculate their way up the rankings. Right, This hasn't been hot-shotted into championship opportunities. People will argue that he didn't quite do enough to earn his way there. But Sean O'Malley has now had 11 fights in the UFC. So he's worked his way forward. He's put in time. Jamal Hill, the lightweight champion, won the title in his eighth fight. A little bit shallower division, so understandable that it comes a little bit quicker. But as I said a couple of weeks ago on the Keyboard Kimura podcast, the success of this program is undeniable. You can't look at Contender Series, which has now produced two champions, a couple other title challengers, one of whom, in Tyler Santos, had a tremendous performance, a whole bunch of ranked competitors, I believe it's 23 in total, and say that this thing isn't working. It is 100% working. The biggest star going in the UFC right now, or one of them, graduated from that program. The guy that just had the internet a buzz last night, graduated from that show, was the first real breakout fighter from that show and has worked his way forward. This is, and, and I'll touch on The Ultimate Fighter a little bit later, but this is, to me, what everybody wants The Ultimate Fighter to still be now. Or, or why there's criticisms of what the ultimate fighter is now. People are just bypassing tough. They're just doing contenders. It makes more sense. I, I fully understand it. But this is a platform. This is a show that every year is graduating good, young, promising talent onto the UFC roster and into the octagon. And we saw again on Saturday night that the success of it is undeniable. You don't have to like the structure of it. You don't have to like the contracts that these athletes garner when they win and get signed to the UFC. All of that is fine, but you cannot look at it and say it's not producing talent. Two champions from the first three seasons, 23 ranked competitors. Maybe more. I haven't updated it since I since I did that pod a couple of weeks ago. Dana White Contender Series is working. It's an undeniable success. And Sean O'Malley's ascent to the top of the Bantamweight division further proves that. I also want to take a moment to tip my cap, give a nod of respect to Aljamain Sterling. There are a lot of people that, for whatever reasons, dislike Aljamain Sterling. Never wanted to give him credit as a champion. Always critical of who he is, the way he carries himself, the way he handles himself in the media, things of that nature. But Saturday night and the way that he handled himself in the octagon and in his post-fight media availability showed, I hope, everybody that had criticisms of him that this man is all class, that he is, he is the right person. He, he does this the right way. And I'm not big on doing the like right way and wrong way of this stuff. But he stood in there and he, he said all the right things. And it, and it's not lip service. I don't mean that in the he's he's just saying what he's supposed to say. He expressed congratulations to O'Malley. He was critical of his own performance right in the moment and said, look, if that guy can do it to me, what what is Volk going to do to me if I go up to 145? I need to sit back and reassess. He went to his availability afterwards and every time people wanted to ask him about mistakes, he said, I don't want to say anything like that because I don't want to take away from what Sean O'Malley did. Sean O'Malley was better and great and did good things tonight. He deserves all the credit. I don't want to sit up here and say, well, if I had this and I did this and he didn't do, and to me, that is a picture of class. That is a picture of professionalism of responsibility, of awareness. He showed a great deal of vulnerability there as well, speaking about his upbringing and sort of all of the things that wrestling and now MMA have given him over his career and in his life, I understand that they're, you know, not everybody is for everybody. But if you don't come away from the way Saturday night ended and Aljamain Sterling carried himself, from the time he got knocked out and lost his title with a newfound respect and admiration or a bolstered respect and admiration for Aljamain Sterling, then I don't think we can be friends and I don't know what to tell you. Because that was class. We want to talk all the time and we do talk regularly about people that carry themselves well after losses. Dominic Cruz after the Cody Garbrandt fight. Conor McGregor when he lost to Nathan Diaz. Went out there, held himself well. This was the best example of that in a long, long time, and Aljamain Sterling deserves praise for that. My takeaway on the strawweight championship fight is that Zhang Wei Li is continuing to get better, as I talked about on Ten Things We Learned. But more so for me, it's it's that strawweight is interesting. Maybe again or now, I don't know what the right word should be for it, but it felt to me for a little bit and I know Andy Hickey posted about this on Twitter, either Friday or Saturday, that the last bunch of fights in this division had all been involving sort of the same five people, right? We had the Ioana and Jechik run. We had the Rosanami Yunus run. We had Andraj and Zhang Weili. We brought Rosanami Yunus back into it. And then we got back to Carlos Sparza and then Zhang Weili again. And it's just been the same set of former champions all vying for the title. Every title fight in this division has involved a cha- obviously a champion, but a former champion at some point along the road. And that to me always ends up feeling a little bit stale because you're not cycling in fresh talent. You're not seeing those new names emerge. Part of what I enjoyed about Saturday and, and Jed Mishu of MMA Fighting post, posted about this on Twitter, is that they just went to the next person up. Amanda Lamos wasn't wasn't the most accredited contender in the division, I would say. If you wanted to, you could probably find some other options, but she was the right person in this moment, given where the division was. Carla Barza was coming off a loss in November. She is pregnant. She is not competing. We had no idea where Rose Namajunas was going to be. She hasn't fought in a little bit. Even though she had a history with Zhang Weili, I don't think we needed to run that out there without any buildup. Yan An wasn't in a spot to challenge for the title at that time when this fight was put together. She is now, now that she has stopped Jessica Andrade, we will get to that in the matchmaking section. Tatiana Suarez only came back in February. It would have been a little hasty to give her one win in the flyweight division over Montana De La Rosa and then hustle her into a strawweight fight. And so that brought us to Lemos, who went out there and gave it her all and gets full marks for her moxie, for her toughness, for her resiliency. She did the right things defensively when Zhang Wei Li got into positions where she could be dominant, but she was dominant. But now, as I look at this division, we have Yan Zhao Nan. We have Tatiana Suarez. We have some fighters that are still potentially ascending and potentially moving forward. Mackenzie Dern has seemingly made some improvements and made some adjustments. She's coming up again. We have Amanda Hibas to me still feels like a better fit at strawweight than she does at flyweight. I want to see if she comes down. Luana Pinero is undefeated in the UFC. Tabitha Ricci is undefeated in the division. There are some young fighters outside of the top 15 that are starting to gain some traction and move forward. And so it feels to me like at the very least... We have the potential for two more matchups against fresh contenders if this all gets booked out right. And that's exciting to me. That's the thing that makes divisions feel alive to me rather than constantly running through rematches and bringing people back in. I like that Rose Namajunas is up at flyweight for right now at the very least. Next fight against Manon Furo. That makes more sense to me. Let's get the obvious contenders. Let's get the obvious challengers in the division, their opportunities, see what happens, see where those younger fighters that I talked about a little bit that are further back in the rankings or outside of them get to as they progress forward and see what becomes of this division. Because Zhang Wei Li looked dominant on Saturday and there's going to be some challengers coming for her that are fresh and new and exciting. And I can't wait. And just real quick on that, next person up point that that I mentioned Jed brought up on, on Twitter on Saturday. This has always been the position that I advocate for. It will remain the position that I advocate for. Let's just get the next deserving fighter into the octagon with the champion. I don't need it to be the longest winning streak and whittled down to one. I talk about this all the time. We don't need to do the Max Holloway gauntlet at featherweight, the Robert Whittaker gauntlet at middleweight, Let's get Bilal Muhammad, his welterweight title shot. Let's get some of these ascending, streaking, deserving athletes the opportunity that they merit and just keep it moving forward. Cool things happen. Leon Edwards kicking Kamaro Usman in the head in Salt Lake City. Those things happen. So let's just book through the deserving proper matchups and we'll get to one of those again later in the show. But let's just do that. Because it seems to work out fine. Nobody was upset that Amanda Lemos was in there with Zhang Weili on Saturday night. It It was an entertaining, interesting fight, even though it was lopsided. Everybody was fine with it. So let's do that in a bunch of other divisions as well. All right, Ian Machado, Gary. First and foremost, as I said on 10 things, terrific performance. Went out there, chopped down Neil Magny, absolutely dominated every second of that fight. To continue his unbeaten march in the welterweight division. He looks like the genuine article. There are elements to his game. There are things just physically that make Ian Machado Gary a very intriguing prospect. And very intriguing emerging talent in this division. I also kind of find him a little bit unlikable. At least his performance on Saturday and just the general way that he carries himself at times. And now I'm sure when my guys at Severe hear this, if any of them tune in, they will want to push back. I welcome those conversations. Maybe I'll reach out to Io or Shawnee to, to sit down and have this conversation about Ian Machado Gary overall at some point here going forward. But to me, it's two parts. One, I would have loved to have seen him press for a finish a little more. Neil Magny's clearly hurt. He's working with a bad wheel. Like, just get out there and finish him. Instead, he kept calling him up, kept taunting him, flipped him off at the end of the second round, gave him the extra shove at the end of the fight, all of those different things. And I understand that he wants to make it about, and would likely make it about, Neil Magny's comments and his media availability about whooping on his son and all of those things, and fine. But it just feels to me there's a little bit of trying too hard to Ian Machado Gary, for me. I understand not everybody. I'd like to see him just go out there, beat the holy hell out of some guys, and then move, keep moving forward. There's this, and and maybe it's, for whatever reason, His confidence and his bravado just rubs me the wrong way. But the way he speaks about himself just doesn't, just really does rub me the wrong way. I understand that he wants to prove himself and I appreciate that he wants to prove himself to be the best striker in the world and challenge himself and all of those things. But I don't need the antics. I don't need the junior version of Conor McGregor but don't say that I'm Connor McGregor, I'm Ian Garrett. Like, just go out and finish this band. Get him out of there. Stop with the antics. Be the sublime talent that you are and let the rest just happen. Let the rest fall where it may. This was an amazing performance. And for me, it's not that it's sullied by the antics. It's not that it's sullied by the comments and the shoves and the that stuff. It's just a little bit of stuff that I don't need. And maybe it's that he's 25 And he'll grow out of it when he's 27, 28, 29, who knows. But it just felt unnecessary and forced to me. And I think that, for me at least, takes away from my desire to see him hustled up the ladder and into some of these bigger fights that certainly do await him in the not-too-distant future. The final two fights on the main card, both in the Bantamweight division, affirm to me, reaffirm to me, confirm to me that Bantamweight is the best division in this sport by far. You see the depth of talent. You see a top 10 fight like Marlon Vera and Pedro Munoz, which was a good competitive fight. You see a guy in Mario Batista earn his fifth straight win in a hard-fought fight against Damone Blackshear, who, despite being 2-2 and 1 in the UFC through five starts is clearly a very good fighter. You see that depth and that quality up and down. Even if you circle in the Bantamweight tough finale between Brad Katona and Cody Gibson, you just see the level of competitiveness, the level of skill and talent and heart and grit and toughness and all of the things we want. It is ever present at Bantamweight. And as I've talked about regularly, Throughout all the tiers in this division, there are those up and coming fighters, those proven guys, those tenured veterans, those tough outs. It's just every single fight in this division is competitive and entertaining and fun to watch. And it's just so great to see a division like this thriving. It's starting to get a little bit bogged up, bottlenecky at the top of the division. So I hope we get that sorted out real quickly. But this this event to me and this month really, because we've had a number of Bantamweight fights, we've got one more next week, Rinya Nakamura and Fernie Garcia that I'm really looking forward to. But this month has really just affirmed and, and made it clear to me that 135 is is the best division going. Hands down, I don't want to hear any other arguments. So the next day takeaways on keyboard. Kimura presented to you by one bone. E Spencer kite talking about UFC 292 from Saturday night at TD garden in Boston, Massachusetts. We move to the prelims. Brad Tavares defeats Chris Weidman. The takeaway here is very similar to what Dana White said at his media availability. I love you, Chris Weidman. Please call it a career. I will give him grace and say that after two years away, coming back and just being back in action after that grizzly knee, knee, sorry, leg injury is an accomplishment, is an achievement. And so if you want to say he needed to shake out the rust, he needed to just feel the canvas under his feet again and, and get one in, let's give him one more. I can hear that argument, but here would be the caveats that I put on it. It's got to be a step backwards. It can't be against... Uh, a stalwart like Brad Tavares who lives out just on the outskirts of the top 15 and has been a top 15 fighter for a decade, which is freakishly difficult to do. And I don't think enough people appreciate what Brad Tavares has been able to do for the last 10 years. It needs to be, as I said in 10 things, the Jim Miller approach. And what worries me is that I don't think Chris Weidman has that in him. I think he is more, of the Tony Ferguson mindset. We heard him talk during the week about I'm in my prime. I'm going to make another run. Now, if that's just him talking himself up and trying to pump himself up and he comes out in the next couple of days and says, look, I don't have it anymore, but I want to keep competing. I'm going to take a step back. Cool. I'm with you. All good. We also heard afterwards that he may have suffered another knee injury. There may have been an ACL or an MCL Injury in there. And if he's off for another year, Chris Weidman is already 39. I don't need to see 40, almost 41 year old Chris Weidman make another return. There's nothing for this man to prove. He won the middleweight title. He defeated Anderson Silva twice, defended that title twice. Like, we're good. So I need his management. I need his family. I need Ray Longo and Matt Sarah and the people around him to just say we're good, Chris. It's okay. It didn't end the way you wanted it to. I know you want to keep doing it, but there's just no need. We can just move on. I hope that's what happens. Most importantly, I hope Chris heals up. I hope he's okay. I appreciate all that he's done in this sport, but we need to continue to find and continue to work to find exit strategies for these athletes that are trying to hold on and looking to hold on when they need to have softer landings and easier exits from this sport. So I'm going to give Jed Mishu a second shout out here on this episode. Talked about him earlier, talking about Amanda Lamos being the next person up and nobody having a problem with it. We'll go to the tough finales where after Kurt Holabaugh defeats Austin Hubbard to to win the lightweight tournament, Jed tweets something out along the lines of, hey, it's great to see these ultimate fighter winners. I hope these young fellows have extended runs into the top 10 and build and eventually become champions. Of course, it's tongue-in-cheek. One, because it's Jed. Two, because Holabaugh is 36. Brad Katona, the bantamweight winner, is already 31. They've already had opportunities in the UFC. Didn't necessarily go well. So I get what he's saying. My counter, and I stopped myself from tweeting this, back to him last night because it was going to come out snarky. It was going to come out too snarky. It was going to come out too defensive and and pushbacky. But my counter is, that's what Dana White's contender series is now. So for all the people that want to be critical of tough, and I, I get the quip, it's a good joke. Dad's a funny dude. Cool. But that's what contender series is. If you're looking for the young fighters that come in and can build and grow and get into the top 10 and maybe win a title. Well, we just saw that in the main event. We saw that in Jamal Hill. We've seen that. And as I said earlier, the 23 to 25 ranked fighters from that program that are now in the top 15 in their respective divisions. I get that it is fun to constantly bag on and poke at the ultimate fighter for being the same thing, 31 seasons in and graduating Two 30-year-olds with limited success in the UFC previously back onto the roster. But if it is young talent you are looking for, if it is young emerging hopefuls that could maybe string some wins together and make a run into the top 10, we've got it every Tuesday night. We're two weeks in. The third week is coming up this Tuesday. Tune in and enjoy Dana White's Contender Series because that is exactly what that program is doing want to touch on Andre Petrosky for a moment he spoke all week about how Bonickel was ducking him and after watching his fight with Gerald Mearshart, he better hope that bone nickel continues to say no because if Bonickel decides to say yes Andre Petrosky's winning streak is gonna end in a heartbeat because he ain't it and I don't know what anybody was thinking going in maybe thinking that he was he was something to to pay real close attention to in this division. I talked about it throughout the week. His best win prior to this was Wellington Turman and it was a it was a hard-fought win over a guy that had previously struggled in the middleweight division and has struggled since going down to welterweight at that. Not to take away as I as I will always say, winning five straight in the UFC is an accomplishment regardless of who you beat, how you get there. Edged out Gerald Meershart on Saturday, that's all well and good. But we've already seen the ceiling of Andre Petrosky The last two fights are the ceiling of Andre Petrosky Unless he changes his body composition, unless he builds up the cardiovascular conditioning stamina that he needs to push hard, to wrestle hard, to grapple hard, to carry all of that muscle around, this is as good as it gets for him. And so he may want to reconsider calling out Bo Nickel. He may want to reconsider trying to chase that one down. Because he could end up being the dog that catches the tailpipe. And that doesn't usually work out very well for the dog. We wrap the takeaways with the Silvas, Natalia and Karine. Natalia needs another step up in competition. Saturday was the first foray into the cage against a ranked opponent. She fought, obviously, Jasmine Jazz earlier in her career. Jazz wasn't ranked, it was her second or third fight in the UFC. Now she's ranked, but they fought previous. She went out and dominated Andrea Lee as expected. Used her movement, used her footwork, used her dexterity in the striking game to just piece up Andrea Lee, who has now lost three straight and is, is in a weird position. Remains a tough out, remains a good test in this range, but I don't know what her future holds in the UFC but it's time for Natalia Silva to get another shot, to get another step up. And we'll get to the actual matchups very shortly here, but I think it needs to be a big step up. Like she is one of these athletes to me that let's just see, let's just take a shot here and just see where it is. Cause she's young enough at 26 that if it doesn't go well, there's plenty of time to regroup, rebuild, continue to move forward or get moving forward again. There's no need to make this She will break into the rankings when they update on Monday or Tuesday. It will probably be a straight replacement for Andrea Lee. So she will come in at number 12 or 13. She doesn't need to fight number 11 or number 10. Let's do something a little bit further up the rankings and see what we have in the now 4-0 in the UFC Natalia Silva. Karine Silva may actually be even better. Now 3-0 in the UFC, three straight first round submission wins gets the tap with one second remaining on the clock in the first round on Saturday to kick off the show. There is a poise and a calmness to Karina Silva that is scary interesting to me. And what I mean is that it's that understanding that no matter what is going on around her, or this is what it looks like at least, she's just comfortable the whole time. She's unbothered by Marina Morosa's attacks. She's unbothered when they get into a scramble situation and Marina Morose reverse, reverses position, gets on top. She just clamps onto a neck and gets the finish. She clearly has a crazy squeeze. That's now two late in the first round submission finishes. Obviously, we saw the knee bar against Ketlin Souza before that. She dropped Morose in this fight as she did Pollyanna Botelho in her debut. So she clearly has power. Good frame, good size, good strength for the division. 29 years old and just streaking. She too needs a step up in competition. She may end up being the immediately more successful of the two Silvas. I think you could push her as well and give her a bigger step up as well. I don't think it's going to happen. I think she will get the slower play while still getting a step up in competition. But these two need to be included in that group of ascending talents in this division that includes Aaron Blanchfield, Macy Barber, Miranda Maverick, Jasmine Jazdivisius, Casey O'Neill. It's got to include an Italian, Karine Silva as well. They looked impressive on Saturday night to kick off the show. And so now it's time to play matchmaker. And before we get into the actual matchups, a little like overall thought, because... There were a couple call-outs, there were a couple suggested matchups that just kind of make me smile and smirk. Um, because Ian Machado Gary called out Wonder Boy and everybody seemed to love that. I I didn't. And Sean O'Malley said he would happily fight Cheeto Vera in December at T-Mobile Arena. We'll get to that one real quick here. I get it. It's just not the fight. And I I know there was somebody, and I didn't read the article because I don't read it, but I saw it as the like headline of the MMA fighting, pros react, compilation article that somebody was like, just call out Marab, you pussy. <laughs> and that's sort of the way I feel, so let's get into this. Sean O'Malley calls out Cheeto Vera. It should be Marab Dwalishvili next. Not only has Marab done more than enough to merit a championship opportunity by winning nine straight in this division, including defeating Piotr Jan, Earlier this year, who is the guy that Sean O'Malley edged out to get a championship opportunity? Rob Dvalishvili beat him over five rounds, beat him handily. There's also the tie-in of it's Aljo's close friend, training partner, and the dude that absconded with your Thriller jacket in Newark, New Jersey. It's hands down the obvious, easiest layup of a fight. But I think the UFC is going to match him up with Cheeto Vera in December, and it's just chaos, and it's just ridiculousness, and it just further proves that, you know, sometimes stars can call their shots. We're certainly not working on merit here, because Cheeto Vera lost earlier this year to Corey Sandhagen, and kind of just didn't edge out Pedro Munoz, but it was a it was a close, competitive fight. Against a guy that has struggled to have success and yet he's probably gonna get a championship opportunity off of it. I don't like it. I will watch it. It should be Marab. If not Marab, it should be Corey Sandhagen, but it's probably gonna be Cheeto. Zhang Wei versus Yan Zhao Nan is just too easy to make. I don't know if the UFC has plans to hold an event in China at some point next year if they want to get Zhang Weili back in before the end of the year, whenever, wherever, Yan Xiaonan is next. That win, that knockout of Jessica Andrade, combined with the overall success she's had of late, is more than enough to merit a championship opportunity. That one's a layup. Let Tatiana Suarez either sit or have one more to continue her push to try to get this championship opportunity. Yan Xiao Nan should have next. Tatiana Suarez waiting in the wings. This feels like easy work for the matchmakers. I mentioned Ian Gary called out Wonderboy and all kinds of people on Twitter were like, let's do it. I want to see it. I can't wait. And I said, nah, I don't like it. He was supposed to fight Jeff Neal on Saturday. He and whoever called him to inform him that Jeff Neal withdrew, had some fun questioning the manhood, questioning the legitimacy of Jeff Neal's withdrawal. And so you know what? Just book him with Jeff Neal again. Let's just see how that one goes. Because while I understand the sell job that Ian Machado Gary is giving of, I want to prove I'm the best striker in the division, and everybody says that's Wonderboy, I say this next bit, As a 44-year-old with a very good relationship with Stephen Wonderboy Thompson and all the respect in the world for him, he's a 40-year-old man. He's a 40-year-old man. There's a 15-year age difference in there. And so I would heavily favor Ian Machado Gary to beat Stephen Wonderboy Thompson in a striking battle in that octagon. Maybe I'm crazy. Maybe there's a lot of people that would be like, no, it won't. Just give me Jeff Neal. Apparently, Wonderboy turned it down. Good on him. Good for him. He he shouldn't be. He doesn't want to be the guy that is getting thrown in there against these emerging talents, against these up-and-comers. He took the opportunity. He said, I'll do it against Michel Paheya. Paheya missed weight. He should get to fight who he wants to fight. Figure this out. Ian Gary was supposed to fight Jeff Neal. Put it back together whenever Jeff Neal is ready. Dana White said that they would like to get Ian Gary on the card in November in Madison Square at Madison Square Garden. I will find out if Jeff Neal could potentially be ready for that. And if he can, stick that in the middle of the pay-per-view and let's see what happens. If Gary is as good as he seems to be, looks to be, proclaims himself to be, he gets through that one that apparently he will get a fight in Dublin in twenty twenty four and will just keep moving forward. But that to me is the matchup to make. There's no real other option to me. I'm not interested in Wonderboy. Fight a guy that's a contender. Fight a guy that's right there, right now. Just went shot for shot with Shavkat Rachmanov earlier this year. You had a lot to say about him when he pulled out of this fight and even going into this fight. So just run it back. Re-rack it. Let's go. This is easy. Mario Batista is in a weird spot because he has won five straight. He has not faced or beaten a ranked opponent. And yet the division is in such a state that there's there's tough it's a tough find to find the right guy for Mario Batista to fight at least for me because I don't want to stick him in there with somebody that's coming off a loss with somebody that is not necessarily going to do that much for him if he is successful and so the name i came up with is Song Yidong who was supposed to face Rob Font on this card was forced to withdraw he is coming off a very good win over Ricky Simone earlier in the year, it would certainly be fighting backwards for Song Yadong and I understand there will be hesitancy on his part to do so after doing so against Simone and then being set to fight forward against Rob Font, but this feels like the right range of matchup. If you want to tell me Umar and Megamedov when he's healthy Sure, but I don't really want to do that because that just feels unfair to Mario Batista because I think Umar is really goddamn good just like everybody else does. But Song Yidong feels like an interesting fight. He is still only, I believe, 25 years old, 26 years old maybe. So there's plenty of time if he is not quite there yet to work his way back up. Mario Batista is 30, he's on a five-fight winning streak. He needs something more than somebody outside of the rankings. He needs something more than the winner of Chris Gutierrez and, Chris Gutierrez, excuse me, and Adrian Yanez, which again is a weird, or no, sorry, Jonathan Martinez and Adrian Yanez, which is a weird fight because Jonathan Martinez is in the same position. Like this is the kind of fight I want to avoid. Jonathan Martinez has won five straight. It's coming off good wins over Said Nurmagomedov and Cub Swanson, and a couple others before that, and now he's facing Adrian Yanez, who got knocked out in the first round earlier this year, but is ranked and is somebody that the UFC likes and the people like, and so he gets the opportunity to bounce back real quick. I don't want to see that for Mario Batista. So if you can convince Song Yadong to give that a go, that would be a matchup. I would settle for a Ricky Simone. I would settle for as I said, for Umar and Omega Medov, but I would like to see Umar get an opportunity further up the rankings as well. It's going to be tough figuring out Bantamweight. We need to sit down. Matchmakers need to sit down. And if you want to call me, I'm happy to get on board and help with the work. We need to figure out Bantamweight. It is the best division in the sport, but it's starting to get a little messy. We need to figure it out. Speaking of Bantamweight, as I said, Marlon Chito Vera, probably going to fight Sean O'Malley. It should be, in my opinion, Piotr Jan. Former champion, coming off a couple losses, needs a reset. Cheeto needs to prove he can beat a top five guy because he hasn't done that yet. But he's probably going to get to fight Sean O'Malley. And it's going to get framed as the only man to beat him. And Sean's going to say, he didn't beat me, I got injured and all of this stuff. And it's going to happen. And I'm pretty sure, provided Cheeto doesn't find that perennial nerve again and shut down his leg, that Sean O'Malley will spark him. We'll just light him up because Cheeto Vera doesn't throw a lot. Maybe fighting Sean O'Malley gives him a little bit more energy, gives him a little bit more attitude, I guess, going into that fight. I'll watch it. Of course I'll watch it. I'm certainly going to watch it. I said earlier, I'm going to watch every episode of The Sugar Show from now until it ends. But I really wish Cheeto was fighting somebody else and that Sean O'Malley was fighting somebody else. But that's not how this is going to work out run through these prelim pairings real quick. Brad Tavares, give me Jun Young Park on a nice little winning streak, 32 years old. Both men still just outside of the top 15. Feels like a winner moves forward kind of fight. That makes a lot of sense. Park won a couple of weeks ago. So timelines feel like they work out. Gregory Rodriguez, pair him with Andre Petroski. As I said, I think Petroski needs to stay as far away from Bo Nickel as possible. But here's another guy that can grapple. Here's another guy that can crack. That's a little bit further ahead of you in the rankings. The timeline lines up. It adds up. It makes a whole lot of sense. This feels like an easy decision to me. I don't think Gregory Rodriguez is somebody that's going forward into the top 15. He's going to live in that second 15 at middleweight, but he can be a perfect guy for this kind of fight. Petroski's one five straight. Let's see if he can handle RoboCop. Make this one. This feels easy. Kurt Holobaugh, sticking around at lightweight, won the ultimate fighter, first victory inside the octagon. How about a guy like Rafa Garcia? Garcia's won his last two fights. The last one was against Clay Guida, so he's already been in there with veteran grapplers, savvy guys. Holabaugh has a little bit more crack, has a little bit more of a finishing mindset and a finishing approach. Feels like a good test for the 28-year-old Garcia who's shown a little bit of promise but needs to take another step. At the same time, Holabaugh doesn't get thrown in too deep with somebody that he's got no business being in there with or that is really going to be favored against him. We see if he can beat a young, emerging lightweight and go from there. As for Brad Katona, I like the idea of a fight with Marcus McGee. He's was coming off a very good win over J.P. Bays a couple of weeks ago, beat Journey Newsome on short notice, Earlier in the year to move to 2 and 0 in the UFC, 8 and 1 overall. Both are in their early 30s. Both come from very good gyms. Neither is really established in this division as of yet, just because there's still limited experience in the octagon at 35. Pair them off. Timelines work. Sounds like a good fight. And if they're going to Dublin early part of next year, get Brad Katona there. If they're doing it later, still make sure Brad is there. He's lived there for a number of years. He should be fighting there. Already touched on Petroski, so we get to the Silvas. Natalia, for me, as I said, I think it should be a step up in competition. And so what's Lauren Murphy up to? Now that might feel mean. <laughs> that might feel, and it and it truly is contradictory to what I said about Mario Batista going forward and facing somebody coming off a loss. But I think this one is different because Lauren Murphy has been a title challenger. She has been a top 10 and top 5 fixture in this division, for a number of years, and so there's a little bit more weight to this one for Natalia Silva, right? If Mario Batista beats Ricky Simone, I would say they're in the same range right now, and so it doesn't do a ton. If Natalia Silva goes out and pieces up and dominates Lauren Murphy, who fought for the title not that long ago, who has been in there with the very best in the flyweight division, that still tells you a little something else. If you don't like that idea then maybe we just do Natalia Silva and Macy Barber in a five-round main event on a fight night show somewhere and see which one of these two becomes the number two ascending young flyweight in this division. I'd be okay with that one as well. Last bit of matchmaking, Karine Silva. Give me the winner of the Tracy cortez jasmine Jazdevicius fight. Both of those ladies who fight in September on the 16th in Las Vegas are already ranked both in the top 15. Karina Silva may creep in there, may displace one of them as the rankings update. Now that she's got three straight wins and three straight first round finishes, but that feels like the right step up. It is a step forward. Tracy Cortez is unbeaten in the UFC. Jazz, Jazz Davisius has looked really good over her last couple of fights. So the winner of that one to see who keeps moving forward in the division. And that's it for the takeaways, ladies and gentlemen. The UFC 292 is in the books. We shift our attention to Singapore bright and early on Saturday out here on the West Coast, headlined by Max Holloway and the Korean zombie Chan Sung Jung. I will be back tomorrow with a new episode of the Keyboard Camorra Podcast. Until then, thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in. Enjoy your Sunday. Love you. I appreciate you. Take care of yourselves. Take care of one another. We'll talk to you again soon.